Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Laura Lemonic, where we'll dive into how Latin American Jews help us to understand the diversity of American Jewish life, both in terms of the history of Jews throughout the Western Hemisphere, as well as the changing face of Jewish life and culture in the U.S. Laura Lemonic is Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of Old Westbury of the State University of New York. Her research is in the area of contemporary immigration to the U.S. and the integration trajectories of ethnic and ethno-religious groups. Her book, Kogel and Frijoles, Latino Jews in the United States, which we'll talk about today, explores issues of ethnicity, race, class, and religious community building among Latino Jewish immigrants in Boston, New York, Miami, and Southern California. Kogel and Frijoles was also awarded the 2020 Latin American Jewish Studies Association Best Book Award. It's really a phenomenal book, and I'm so excited that Laura was able to join us to talk about these issues. Thanks again for listening in, and I'm glad that Laura is able to join us and help us to think through the diversity of modern Jewish experiences and why it matters. So hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. It's lovely to be here. I'm really glad to have this conversation. I think that your book is just so interesting, and there's so much to think about and talk about there. Thank you. I'm super excited to talk about it, and I think or hope that it's an important moment to talk about some of these issues. I think that it might be useful to to start out with, maybe you could tell us a bit about the broader story of Latin American Jews and explain what this population is, what their history has been, um, and why they're so important to think about in general. So I'll sort of start off with background going way back to the time of the Inquisition. I think most folks think about Latino Jews as uh, communities that went to Latin America back in the 15th century, sort of at the late 1400s, early 1500s. Then there were certainly a number of Spanish and Portuguese Jews that populated or colonized Latin America, but they are mostly no longer in existence. At least the descendants of these folks are no longer in existence, primarily because there were strict laws against Jews living in any area that was under the rule of the Inquisition. And that lasted through the 1800s. So the roots of contemporary Jewish Latin America are very similar to the roots of contemporary Jewish communities here in the United States. So what we know is that Jews leave their countries wherever they're residing, either in the Ottoman Empire or Eastern Europe. Um, They're fleeing pogroms and likely fleeing um, economic crises. So they're really leaving where they are to go and make a new life somewhere. And most prefer to come to the United States, but they really sort of went wherever they could get in. So I think that that's important to note. We had uh, the beginnings of the Jewish migration to Argentina happened in the late 1800s because Baron Hirsch bought land in areas of Argentina and had this idea that Jews would go and populate rural landscapes and and have these sort of colonies. And this did happen for, I would say, 50, 60 years, but they weren't super successful. 
In fact, uh, the Jewish colonies is, is, has become a sort of myth of Argentine Jewish tradition. Um, but overall, Jews went to Latin America, went to urban areas, and they came really at the, at the turn of the century in the 1920s and the 1930s. They were fleeing pogroms, they were fleeing the crisis, they came after the Holocaust, they came to Latin America as a result of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But I think what's important to note is that Jews entered different Latin American countries at different times. And the reason this is important is because they're coming as migration laws change, they're coming when laws in the United States change, so they're when they can no longer come to the United States. They'll end up perhaps in Mexico, in Brazil, in Argentina. What we know, for example, is that Mexico saw the biggest spike in Jewish migration after 1924. 1924 is when we have the Johnson Reed Act here in the United States, which essentially closes the doors to immigrants that aren't coming from the traditional white European countries. So there's a sort of ripple effect of what happens in the United States ripples over into Latin America. So you're making a distinction between Jews of Sephardi or Spanish origin, uh, on the one hand, and Jews who become Latino when they arrive in Central America. And I think that that it's interesting because we can think about the population of Spanish-speaking Jews in terms of where they come from on the one hand and and the places where they arrive on the other. Um, Because the Sephardi Jews, uh, many of them make their way to the Ottoman Empire, right, for instance, uh, or to Amsterdam or other places. Um, And this is one historical trajectory. Obviously, it's many historical trajectories, but it's one set of trajectories. And you're talking about a different one that has more to do with where people arrive to and what their lives become there. I often get emails or phone calls from people that they think they can link their roots to some Sephardic converso um, at the time of the Inquisition, or they're sure that I must be Sephardic because I am from Latin America. But I think I should clarify a little bit is that what I mean by Latino Jews, or Latin American Jews, rather, if that's what we're talking about right now, are really folks who reside in Latin America, Um, whether you're of Sephardic origin or of your um, Ashkenazi origin or Mizrahi origin. And Latin American Jews have a very strong national identity. Um, Mexican Jews might be Sephardic or they might be Ashkenazi, but they're also 100% Mexican. And that to them is an essential part of their identity, as is, you know, their Jewish identity. Ladino is spoken to some extent, but it's not widely spoken. In fact, Yiddish is more widely spoken in Latin America than, say, Ladino. We also tend to think that Latin America has a much larger Sephardic population than the United States. It's larger, but it's not a predominant Sephardic population. In fact, it's only about 80% of Latin American Jews are of Ashkenazi origin because, you know, that's where the migration streams came from. One of the things that's interesting here is that you mentioned the national identity of these various groups, that Jews in Mexico feel themselves to be Mexican, uh, you know, Jews in Brazil feel themselves to be Brazilian, uh, etc., But at the same time, you talk about Latino Jews as what you call a pan-ethnicity. So can you explain this tension in terms of the history of Jews in these Latin American countries and sort of how it has developed over time? So I think one of the things that I try to point out or think about is that there are sort of common factors. I call these sort of these common denominators. 
Many folks came around the same time, they're immigrants to a larger region, to countries where there is a strong Catholic civil religion. There's also inherent racial and class structures that are similar but not the same. And they are also a part of a larger ethno-religious group. They're Jews. These are all things that Latin American Jews have in common. At the same time, because they came at a certain time with a certain set of skills and also not necessarily able to, in some areas, purchase land, in some areas, purchase buildings, they tended to also have similar trades, which, given the structural economy of many Latin American countries, allowed them to advance, uh, to have some sort of upward mobility. So all of these things give them a sense of to some extent, othering within their countries, but belonging to a similar group. At the same time, Mexican Jewish life is lived very differently than, say, Argentine Jewish life for a number of reasons. Mexican Jews came a little bit later. They have very strong sub-ethnic groups. What I mean by that is that they have, they call them different communities, and the Sephardic community is much stronger, let's say. There's less intermarriage across sub-ethnic groups in Mexico. Mexico in itself is a much more religious country. So religiosity is accepted in a way that perhaps is not accepted, say, in Argentina, for example. Um, So all of these things are going to um, result in different lived Jewish experiences. Um, One thing I do want to point out is that what ends up happening in Latin America that doesn't necessarily happen in the United States and makes for a strong Jewish identity is the oftentimes the failure of the state to support social services. What we see in Latin America is that because the, the state doesn't provide acceptable to some services such as public education, um, perhaps security, even physical spaces to securely do sports. Um, we have ethnic communities providing these. And this happens all over Latin America. And it turns out that for the Jewish community, it's the Jews that do it. So what you have is very strong Jewish institutions. You have a strong Jewish educational system. You have strong Jewish athletic and cultural institutions. You have strong, close-knit Jewish neighborhoods. And as a result, you have a very strong sense of Jewish identity. And this is true all over Latin America. You're talking about a sort of shared experience in some way of Jews in in different Latin American countries. In what ways are there distinctions between them? Oftentimes, I think, how does the Jewish life in certain countries compare to Jewish life in the United States, which is where we are today? And Argentina is most like most like the United States for a number of reasons. In large part, it had a huge migration stream, not just Jews, but Italians, Spaniards, Germans, um, around the same time that the United States did. So Jews were able to assimilate in some ways much more easily to the larger sort of white European immigrant group, much the same way that Jews did so here in the United States. Um, the rates of an outmarriage from the Jewish community are much higher in Argentina, say, than in Mexico. They are able to work in professional services much more than in other places or much more quickly. They're much more likely to um, be part of the larger government and social institutions. But somewhere like Mexico or Argentina, one of the things that we find is that 
Mexican society is very different. Venezuelan society is very different than, say, an Argentine society in the sense that class and race are very closely intertwined. The class divisions are, are stark. Um, much starker than they are in Argentina and Uruguay, the Southern Cone, Chile, um, even in certain parts of Brazil. So you already have very strong divisions between Jews and others because of class. There's also very strong racial divisions, which you don't necessarily have in places like the Southern Cone because there's a majority white in the urban areas where Jews reside in the Southern Cone. So I think the racial distinction is quite different. Um, And I, I mentioned before that religiosity is uh, much more acceptable in Mexico. So in that respect, there is much higher attendance at, say, synagogues than um, in Mexico, for example. I think Mexican life is also more conservative. In Venezuela is more conservative, though we can talk a little bit about Venezuela in a bit, um, because since I wrote the book, the Jewish population has really, really dwindled because of the political situation there. What is the utility of the framework of Latino or Latin American Jews as a whole? Because I think, again, um, as you were just discussing, the the experiences of Jews in these different countries is different from one another just because each country is different. Um, Mexico has one political and um, religious culture. Uh, Venezuela is a little different. It has different, as you mentioned, issues relating to the political situation that affect the Jewish community. So to what extent do you think that it is useful to group Jews in Latin American countries together? I started really thinking about Latin American Jews as a group once they migrated to the United States. So to really think about this idea of acquiring a new identity as part of the process of migration. You know, my dad always tells a story that says, you know, I never realized I had an accent till I came here. And, he, and then he goes on to say, you know, I, I never actually realized I was Latino till I came to the United States. So I think one of the questions that I set out to answer was, well, are these people Latino? Because in many ways, they're very different than what we think of Latinos in the United States. Um, So to what extent do they identify as Latinos? And if they don't, do they identify as something else? And really, how salient is that identity? So am I just grouping all these people together because they're all Jews from Latin America and doesn't mean anything? What I argue is that I think what I found particularly interesting was that oftentimes sociologists don't talk about culture. Um, we talk about structure and we, you know, we sort of talk about, you know, all the social forces that create a identity and group and a group consciousness. But I found that in many ways, religion is not only ethnicity, but it's culture. And because this group of people identified across religious lines. They had a shared culture, and their shared culture really came from being othered in Latin America. Now, they weren't othered in the sense that they were completely outside of the margins, but let's say they're at the borders, right? They're sometimes allowed in, sometimes not part of the mainstream. Catholicism is an important part of the lived experience in Latin America. It's in the courts. People almost don't understand how you can't be Catholic. I think that's also changing with the rise of of Protestantism in Latin America. But Jewishness is, is not something that people necessarily, people don't know a lot of Jews, right? 
it's I, I think that that's something to think about that that there there is always this this sense of being an outsider, but you come to the United States and you're even more of an outsider, right? You're in Argentine, you're a Mexican, but you're not a Mexican in the same way that the majority of Mexican immigrants are because you didn't belong to that group in Mexico. At the same time, you're not really an American Jew. And this is really where culture comes into the picture. And I think what I found was that folks began to identify along these cultural lines. And it's one of them is religion, one of them is a shared historical experience, but another one is the idea of modes of behavior, values, things that we often don't talk about in these academic studies, right? But I think what I heard from a lot of the people that I interviewed was an Argentine Jew might feel that their value system was more similar to a Venezuelan Jew or a Mexican Jew than an American Jew. So they identified, you know, really through culture and other ways that they identified was what we traditionally think of as culture, how we consume culture, right? Media, books, music, what they dance to, food, all of this sort of material culture that we consume is also something that people share, even if it's not from their country. But this becomes particularly salient when you're no longer in your country. One of the the threads that's coming through from the way that you're talking about this and just from our conversation over the past few minutes is I think that we can talk about a number of different stages or, or a number of different elements of the development of Jews in and from Latin American countries, right? You started off by making this distinction between the Jews of Sephardic origin, Jews from Spain and Portugal, who came to the Americas in early modern times. And you also talked about Jews of Ashkenazi origin, who came to Latin American countries in, say, the 19th, 20th centuries. Then there's also this process by which this population has, to some extent, moved to the United States. And I think that part of what you're focusing on here is the second and third group um, and thinking about this continual process of othering, whether this is within Latin American countries themselves, but also within the U.S., where these Jews from Latin American countries, Latino Jews, it sounds to me like you're saying that they, to some extent, feel like an other in comparison with the rest of the Jewish population in America. I think that's exactly true. I often talk about the history really just to give a background of, you know, where these immigrants are coming from. But my research really is on contemporary Latin American Jewish immigrants here in the United States and how they construct a new identity in the face of being an outsider. And this is where I think it's important to think about uh, Jewish immigrants in the United States and really sort of begs the question, what does it mean to be a Jew? I always tell people that I, I had to learn to become an American Jew. You know, I, I would go to summer camp and I'd go to the, you know, the JCC and I write a lot of books, right? I write a lot of the books about coming to the Lower East Side and, and all the Khan family, um, those sorts of books to really understand like, oh, these are people's histories. This is not my history. But this is what it means to be an American Jew, because I never felt that I was of the American Jewish experience. And I think oftentimes what happens is that we sort of highlight the American Jewish experience and sort of forget about everybody else. But what I can see from this group that I studied is, is that, you know, many felt that their experiences were, were very different from what was happening here. I always tell the, the story of a Venezuelan Jew that I interviewed, and he, he went to a synagogue in Atlanta. And they said, oh, you're from Venezuela, you're converting. That's so nice. And the guy said, well, I know I'm Jewish. 
And these people had never even thought that there could be a Jew in Venezuela. You know, I think how we practice Jewish faith is a little bit different. So it makes you feel like an outsider. So it really begs the question of, well, who gets to be an insider and who gets to be an outsider? And if you're never an insider, then what do you do? I think that part of what you're thinking about here is about how looking at the history and the development of Latino Jews helps us to expand our notion of the range of Jewish experiences in in modern times and even who counts as a Jew. I don't know if you maybe want to say a bit more about this particular issue, how we can understand the diversity of trajectories through history and narratives and identities and so on by bringing Latino Jews into our way of thinking about modern and contemporary Jewish history and Jewish culture. One of the things that happens in the American Jewish experience is that over time, as Jews become more assimilated, the value system that Jews thought was so different from the larger American mainstream has become the American mainstream. You can't really separate. And, you know, there's a lot of of scholarship about how Jews became white over time. But I don't think I want to touch that right now. I really want to think about how Jewish values became, or rather middle-class values became, you know, they became sort of one and the same. Um, So there's really nothing to distinguish Jews from the larger white American mainstream. But what happens when immigrants come is that there's a sort of disconnect there, right? They see things differently. I think this is why, uh, as an immigrant, I became a sociologist because my lens is so different, or or rather I have a different lens with which to understand things. And what becomes important in understanding the history of how different communities developed is to think about the structures that led to the development of group identity. So I mentioned earlier before that Jewish identity in Latin America didn't just come out of a bubble strong Jewish identity, strong Zionist tendencies came out of a sort of interaction with the larger national culture, but also the structure of the state and what the state was able and not able to provide. Now take those people out and bring them to the United States, and their Jewishness is very different. Their religiosity, their their levels of religiosity, how their culture is different. But it's important to understand that These are the folks that are part of the American Jewish experience today, and they're changing what it means to be an American Jew. I talk about Latino Jews, but we also have lots of other contemporary Jewish groups that have come and are are participants in American Jewish life. Persian Jews, Jews from the former Soviet Union, Israeli Jews, and in many ways, because they're immigrants, their Jewish identity is so important to them. I want to pick up on what you just said a moment ago about various Jewish immigrant groups to the U.S. For me, as I think about the ways in which we can understand the multiplicity of Jewish experiences in in modern times, uh, whether we're talking about generally speaking or in the American context in particular, one of the things to think about is, is the way in which the American Jewish experience is often understood, especially in the popular imagination, as being you know, the singular story of the immigration of Eastern European Jews to the United States, you know, 1881, 1924, for instance. And, and of course, you know, there's been a whole range of scholarship over the course of many generations to break down this narrative and talk about other groups. Here, you're pointing out and emphasizing 
through Latino Jews, one of a number of groups of Jews who have come to America over the past half century or so in particular, especially post-1965, that has really changed the face of American Jewry in a lot of ways. That these groups of Jews have maintained their identity in some ways that are really significant. I think about the Persian Jews in particular. How do you see the history you know, of Latino Jews and their immigration to the U.S. being part of this broader story of these groups, Persian Jews, Jews from the former Soviet Union, uh, etc., coming to the U.S., and how it helps us to better understand the diversity of American Jewish culture? So I, I do want to point out that I think that part of what these groups have in common is that they're immigrants, post-1965 immigrants. But their experiences are quite different for so many reasons. One of them is, you know, asylum refugee status, sort of how they were able to get here, their Jewish identity before they left. So their sort of pre-migration identity, particularly for Jews from the former Soviet Union, and they had very little affiliation of any with Jewish life. And compared to Latin American Jews who had very high levels of affiliation with Jewish life, um, Persian Jews tend to have higher levels of religiosity and have become more religious in the United States, many of them. But particularly for Persian Jews and Latin American Jews and even Israeli Jews is that what they will often say is that they feel that they are not part of the larger American Jewish experience. And as a result, what we see is that they tend to foment either strong Jewish communities for themselves, um, particularly the Persian Jews, but also the, the, the Latino Jews. And I'll talk a little bit about Miami because I think that the case study of Miami is particularly important in thinking about these issues. What I will say is that it's important to understand not only the different groups, cultures, identities that make up Jewish life in America, but also the continuity of Jewish life. So what we know is that as third, fourth generation American Jews um, become more and more assimilated, the folks that tend to be more tied to Jewish life tend to be um, people that are sort of more religious or, or have higher levels of religiosity. What we find is that that's not necessarily true for many immigrants, for many immigrant groups. And I will talk a little bit about Miami, like because what happened in Miami was, or is rather, a sort of interesting case study in North Miami Beach and Miami-Dade County a large number of Latino Jews came to live there, some temporarily, but overall permanently, starting in the 1980s. So they often left after certain political and economic crises in their country. It started off with Peruvian Jews, followed by Colombian Jews. I left out the Cubans, by the way, and I can tell you about that in a second. But And then we have Mexican Jews that came after the tequila crisis, Argentine Jews that came after the 2001 uh, crisis, and today it's filled with Venezuelan Jews. But what happened there is that they came to a community that was essentially dying out. So their synagogues were synagogues of people that were older Holocaust survivors. Um, they were about to close. They had very few vibrant Jewish institutions. And Latin American Jews came and revived all that, in part because that's what they came with from their home countries. They were used to going to Jewish schools. They were used to participating in activities at the synagogue. They were used to going to their local JCCs. And they were able to recreate that to some extent in Miami. And they became the sort of face of Jewish Miami. 
and revitalize a really a dying community. And also this is how they became pan-ethnic. So when I talk a little bit about pan-ethnicity and what do people share? Well, now what happens in Miami is that they are together in these larger institutions and sub-ethnic groups are not concentrated. Venezuelan Jews and Argentine Jews might go to the same school or Peruvian Jews and Colombian Jews all go to the JCC. And there's, you know, sociologists always like to think about who's marrying whom, you know, and then you really see the group becoming pan-ethnic when they marry across ethnic lines, right? When their friend group, when when their sort of social network is comprised of Jews from all over Latin America. But I think what's important to really point out here is that if they had not come and participated or invested in these Jewish institutions, we wouldn't have a vibrant Jewish community in this part of Miami. Part of what you've been talking about here um, has to do with the transformation of Latin American Jewish life through this process of the immigration to the U.S. So how is this help us to understand better this process of contemporary immigration in general? You know, I think Miami is a sort of microcosm for the sort of larger streams of migration from Latin America. What I studied was what happens with the Jews when they came over. So they revitalize institutions. But I always say the cost of entry into Miami is quite easy. It's cheap to fly there. Everyone speaks Spanish. Um, you're likely to disadvantage if you don't speak Spanish. It resembles Latin America in many ways. Um, that perhaps the east, you know, sort of the East Coast or the Midwest or, or even the West Coast doesn't. There is room for small entrepreneurs. People get jobs through social networks in a way that doesn't happen as much in perhaps places where the social networks are not as tight. And this is very similar to what goes on in Latin America. So what happens in, in Miami is that we have a big migration of Jews, but you also have a big migration of Latinos in general, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Mexicans, Venezuelans, Cubans. And if you sort of take a look at Miami, you sort of can see how assimilation takes place over generations. Miami is also an interesting case study of, for what happens, you know, first, second, and third generations. Um, we see what happens with the Puerto Ricans and the Cubans who are by this time, second and third generations. Many of them leave. They tend to have upward mobility, which I think is important to note because we do know that the descendants of, you know, the second generation of 1965 immigrants, even the third generations, actually do much better than their parents, regardless of what we see in the media. And Miami shows this also. So we see first generations that start off oftentimes in the lower rungs, and this happens for Jews also. And over time, there are are able to achieve upward mobility and their children and grandchildren are able to achieve upward mobility. So you absolutely see this in Miami. But I do want to point out that Miami is a special place for thinking about the upward mobility of of immigrants and particularly Latino Jews. We don't see the same kind of pan-ethnic construction and pan-ethnic group consciousness among Latino Jews outside of Miami. And that again has to do with structure. It has to do with the kind of structural of resources that are in place or not in place in Miami. The fact that the Jewish community in Miami Beach and North Miami Beach and sort of south of Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood was sort of dying out. Um, and the retirees don't even go to Miami anymore, right? They, they pass right over Miami. They're going a, a little bit further north. So you don't have the snowbirds and people coming in 
So the fact that that existed was really an opening for Jews from Latin America to come in and revitalize these institutions. If you go somewhere like New York or Boston or, or even, even California, strong institutions exist. And there's really no place for Jews from Latin America to create their own communities. It's really fascinating. I think that part of what you're saying here is that the challenges that face these community institutions in the Miami area, actually, they provided an opening towards the creation of this pan-ethnic identity because fundamentally, Jews coming from Latin American countries were able to enter into, um, and as you say, revitalize existing institutions where there was perhaps a vacuum of leadership or something, as opposed to creating new institutions of their own. If they had instead looked to create new institutions, then you might have seen the creation of the Venezuelan synagogue and the Mexican synagogue and the Argentine synagogue and so on and so forth. But I think part of what you're saying here is that the opening there led to people coming into existing institutions, which meant a certain kind of intermingling and and, and association that might not have happened if they were looking to create new institutions because the existing ones perhaps were very vibrant. So I I do want to point out that um, these sub-ethnic sort of synagogues do exist. So I, I, you know, I don't want to paint a picture that says, oh, well, now they all mix in one synagogue. There's a couple of synagogues and it might be, you know, more Mexicans, say, than, than Argentines, in large part because, like I said before, people come with their own national origin culture. But absolutely, I think the difference really is not necessarily that they would have created a Mexican synagogue per se, but they might have joined an already existing synagogue if those existed, which is what we see really here in places with strong Jewish communities. And perhaps, you know, because social networks, particularly among immigrants, social capital is is such an important part of the migration process, more Mexican Jews will join one synagogue because of word of mouth than another synagogue, but they won't become a Mexican synagogue per se, let's say in New York, because there's such a vibrant Jewish culture that exists. The other place that we do see a strong construction of Latin American Jewish life is in San Diego, where Mexican Jews uh, have sort of recreated to some extent the close-knit community that they had back in Mexico. And in large part, that's also due to the sort of larger economic and political forces of them being able to cross the border easily. It's very close to Mexico. Um, it's safer, but they still have business in Mexico. So they might live in San Diego, but do their business in Mexico. But this is not less of a pan-ethnic story. It's an ethnic enclave story, which I think is quite different. So, I mean, I think that we've been talking a lot about the specifics of the Jewish communities in different places around the country. But I was wondering if you could maybe step back and say a bit about how looking at the history of Latino Jews, and particularly the migration of Latino Jews um, to the U.S., helps us to better understand the broader history of migration and immigration to the U.S. over recent decades. I think that, again, thinking about this history as part of the post-1965 shifts in migration because of the new laws, etc., this is part of a bigger story in a lot of ways. So the 1965 Hart-Celler Act essentially changed the face of America. America is what it is today because of this law. And um, what it did was it overturned the quotas and it allowed for family reunification. And it also allowed for folks to come over with certain professional degrees. So what we see is that by the 1970s, Latin America is facing a lot of economic and political turmoil. 
So not just for the Jews, right, but we see this all over Latin America through the 80s, um, number of revolutions, we have coups, we have military juntas, we have a number of economic crises where, you know, you sort of go from nationalist economies to um, IMF-imposed neoliberal economies that leave a lot of people without money, without jobs, without a way to eat. And this is really the push factor that drove folks to leave Latin America. So in 1965, what we begin to see is that a lot of people are able to come over because they're doctors or they're nurses or, or they're engineers or they have certain degrees. In the, by the 1970s, in the Southern Cone, Jews could come over, for example, with these qualifications. And this is also the time that we begin to see the rise of the military juntas in Latin America. Once folks start to come over, they can bring their families over. So overall, this changes the migration streams, right? And so now once you've been here for a certain amount of time, you can bring your spouse, you can bring your adult siblings, you can bring your adult kids. And this is how we begin to see, you know, what we call family reunification migration. And this really changes the racial makeup of America. There were very few immigrants between 1924 and 1965. We had um, some folks that came over that were refugees from the war. But other than that, in general, you know, the big push towards migration really happened post-1965. But what that means, I think, is we have to rethink the racial dichotomy schemes of the United States, right? Because now the migration stream is such that we have immigrants from all over the world, uh, Asian immigrants, Latin American immigrants, we have brown immigrants, um, black immigrants, African immigrants, Caribbean immigrants, and Latino Jews, which are essentially white immigrants. We need to think about how this is happening in the United States around the time of the civil rights movement. Um, we're beginning to, as a society, really take stock of what it means to be a person of color in the United States, um, what diversity means. And for many years, we sort of embraced diversity, I would argue, until we get to 2016. And this is important, particularly for Latino Jews, and this is a point that I make, is that we embrace diversity sort of. So as we begin to think about uh, the racial makeup of the United States, so what happens is that folks who are from Latin America or folks that are Black from the Caribbean or Africa are better positioned to achieve upward mobility in the United States than an African-American or a Mexican worker or someone whose class intersects with race in such a way that they, they will face structural barriers to achieving upward mobility. So one of the things that I point out about Latino Jews in the United States is that they're able to, to sort of use their Latino background to their favor. In a world that kind of celebrates diversity, particularly in the areas where they reside, I also want to point that out. Most Latin American Jewish immigrants come to the United States and are going to reside in urban areas where diversity is somewhat celebrated. So they are able to be diverse, but also be safely diverse because they're white and they're educated. And because Jewishness is synonymous with whiteness in the United States, oftentimes they might signal to people, well, 
you know, I'm Latino, but really I'm Jewish. So I'm much more like the white mainstream than, you know, a brown Mexican immigrant that crossed the border. This circles back to something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation is this discussion about the question of whether or not Jews are white or whether or not Jews are perceived as white um, within the U.S. Building off of what you were just saying, how is it that looking at the history of um, Latino Jews, their immigration, the contemporary communities, how does this help to inform this conversation about Jewish whiteness in the U.S.? So one of the things that I asked all of the people that I interviewed was, well, what would you check off? You know, what do you check off in the census? And most would say, well, you know, maybe Jewish. And I said, well, you can't really check off Jewish on the census. But they would say uh, European Jewish, European Latino, you know, maybe Sephardic. But I would argue that their self-identity, right? So we often talk about racial identity as something that you assign to yourself, but also something that, that is ascribed to you, that somebody else assigns to you. And the reality of it is, is that in the United States, we see the world through a prism of color, through a lens of color. Black people will tell you, well, I'm Black. I, I can't not identify differently, even if I wanted to. But that's not the case for Jews from Latin America. In many ways, they don't face the, the sort of microaggressive racism. They can identify how they want to identify in many ways, because they're phenotypically resemble the white mainstream, which I think is an important point when we think about phenotype and race and what it means to be Latino in the United States. Um, in many ways, are we talking about being from a Latin American country, being Hispanic? Because Hispanic under the census classification, which was defined in 1980 by the Office of Management and Budget, it really means somebody that is from any of these countries in Central South America and Mexico, right? So if you're from any of these countries, you're classified as Hispanic. But Hispanic is an ethnicity. So you, you can check off Hispanic and then you can check off race. So you can check off Hispanic and white, Hispanic and black, Hispanic and other. And what we find is that over time, this ethnicity has become racialized. So it happens for two reasons. One of the ways that it happens is, and I do this when I run statistics, you know, I combine the categories and I collapse the categories. So if you've checked off anything and Hispanic, I'll code you as Hispanic. I mean, most people do this because this is a way for us to differentiate, you know, different groups. So I don't really care if you said Hispanic and Black, I'm coding you as Hispanic because I need to know who's Hispanic. But what happens then? What happens is that once this becomes part of the larger discourse, then we start to have this big group of Hispanics that's actually hiding a lot of different categories and a lot of different sort of everyday lived experiences. Because my experience as a Hispanic is going to be very different from the experience of um, a Mexican immigrant who doesn't look like me, who doesn't, you know, who's not blonde and, and, and blue eyed. They're going to face much more structural racism, much more sort of everyday racism than I would. So what ends up happening really is that we, we have this larger national discourse about the Latino vote and, you know, Latino culture and to think about what's happening today and how so many people were so surprised by the Latino vote. But what I just described really 
shows that there is no one Latino group. Rather, this group is made up of lots of different racial uh, groups, lots of different ethnic groups, lots of different sub-ethnic groups, religions, and also really socioeconomic class. I mean, I think part of what you were just describing was the way in which thinking about Latino Jews helps us to understand the complexity of you know, the makeup of the U.S. This set of issues helps us to think through how there's this great diversity within the Jewish community, within the Jewish population on the one hand. Um, also, again, as you're talking about within the Latino or the Hispanic population as well, that, that it is itself highly diverse. The issue here to some extent is how is it that, that looking at this particular issue helps us then to broaden our conception of these issues? There's a, a couple of ways that I think are important to think about this. You know, on the one hand, I talked a little bit about diversity, and I think the reason I, I want to go back to this is to think about programs that aim to diversify, say, places of work or um, education or even, you know, programs, affirmative action programs, oftentimes favor people like me, or they favor um, immigrants from Africa, for example in the name of diversity, right? So one of the reasons that I think we need to sort of dig a little deeper is is to really think about um, who are we lumping into these categories? And for so many of these policies, um, who, who are we really helping? So I think that, that that's absolutely an important one. And I, I got a lot of questions, you know, on the Latino votes. How could the Latinos in Miami vote for Trump? The same way Latinos in, in Argentina voted for whoever the Peronist candidate of the moment is, or the fact that people support Chavez in Venezuela and support Maduro in Venezuela, or support or didn't support Castro. Um, there's so many reasons why people might have voted for Trump. We need to think deeper about who are the people and the groups within these larger categories and how policies affect certain people and, and not other people. And then just to sort of go back to the Jewish community, what we also see is that just like Latinos are not one big homogenous group, neither are Jews. And what ends up happening is that Jewish institutions oftentimes cater to or work towards attracting a certain kind of Jew. And then I'm just going to talk a, a tiny bit about the work of Chabad here. Chabad has been very successful in attracting Jewish immigrants. And one of the reasons they've been so successful in attracting Jewish immigrants is because they tailor their programs in such a way that speaks to Jews from other countries. And American Jewish institutions haven't been able to do that. So I, mean, I guess part of the issue here has to do with the issue of seeing the diversity within the Jewish community, that the Jewish experience in general is not all of one thing. The Jews in the United States are themselves very diverse. How is it that thinking about Latino Jews in particular helps us to uncover this aspect of Jewish history in general and the American Jewish experiences. There are at least two sides to this question. The first one is how we can see Jews of color uh, within the Jewish population, and then how this contributes to this discussion about 
whether or in what ways Jews are white or Jews have become white or Jews are perceived as white, which are all very different things. You know, and of course, there are more aspects to that issue than just those three. Um, but how this contributes to these various discourses, these various issues of looking at the diversity of American Jewish life and the place of Jews in the U.S.? So I should backtrack. And I said before, I think, you know, as a sociologist, I always talk about majorities, right? So um, the majority of Jews are seen as white. What I found from interviewing Latino Jews is that Jewish institutions are not necessarily welcoming to non-traditional American Jews. And in part, it's because Jewish institutions' religious life is cultural, and a Jewish culture is often based on national culture. So American Jewish life is different than the Jewish life of, let's say, Latin Americans. At the same time, the racialized experience of a Black Jew is going to be very different from a white American Jew in so many ways, right? To walk into a synagogue as a Black person and have everybody probably stare at you is going to make you feel not very welcome. So I would argue that American Jewish institutions have a race problem, right? We cannot see beyond the sort of white, Ashkenazi, middle-class, liberal Jew. But we know, right, intellectually, we know that that's not all Jews look like that. But the expectation is so different that these institutions, in the end, become unwelcoming. They become unwelcoming, and in many ways, we, and I mentioned before about this idea of Jewish values becoming middle-class values, so then there becomes no way to be a Jew, right? If you're not welcome at these institutions, and then how do you practice your Jewishness, right? This goes back to something that you were saying before. You're talking about the complex interplay between questions within the Jewish community issues within the wider American landscape, um, and ultimately this way in which people can be on the margins of all of this. This relates to one of the central issues within your book, which is you open up you know, the introduction with a question in quotes, right? You're kind of paraphrasing a, a, a discourse or a debate about how Latino Jews see themselves. Do they see themselves as Latino? Do they see themselves as Jews? Etc. And so I was wondering if you can maybe say a bit more about the tension between identities, right? How one can be both Latino and Jewish, how one can be both a person of color, um, but also part of a group that's often perceived as white, uh, being the Jews. Like, how does this help us to think about the complexity of identities? You've talked here a lot about the institutional side, right? The way in which Jewish community institutions may or may not be welcoming to, you said non-traditional Jews, which I presume by that you mean Jews who are not of Eastern European origin, Holocaust survivors, et cetera, right? You know, well, not just Holocaust survivors, but anybody who came through that particular trajectory, you know, from Pell settlements, you know, immigration, et cetera, Ellis Island, all these different things, you know, I'm compressing this complexity, but the point is that, that this is kind of the, what you would call the traditional Jewish experience of which, you know, as we've been pointing out, doesn't really encompass everybody. So the question is, 
you've been talking about this from the standpoint of how Jewish community institutions may not be welcoming, or even if they say they're welcoming, they may not actually be welcoming to, to Jews outside of that mainstream. And so from the perception or, or from the standpoint of um, Latin American Jews themselves, how does this help us to understand all these issues about the nature of identity? In, in some ways, it sort of opens up this big can of worms, right? Like, I, I think I, identity, as I mentioned before, is, you know, comes from within. It comes from a sense of belonging to a group. Right? It also comes from a sense of not belonging to a group. Oftentimes, you, you identify as something because you don't belong. But I think what's interesting about Latino Jews is that oftentimes they can, in their own way, code switch. I do want to point out that all of my interviewees were first generation and many had accents. So I had one woman say to me, you know, if somebody sees me, they might not think I'm Mexican, but the moment I open my mouth, they know I'm Mexican. So oftentimes they face this sort of othering because they had an accent or, you know, they might look a little bit different. And this happens among Jews and among non-Jews. To go back to something I talked about before is that oftentimes people find their sort of least common denominator, right? Like, what is it that they can identify across? And they'll say to me, if I'm somewhere and there are um, only Americans and some are Jews and some are not Jews, I'm going to go with the Jews. But if there is a Jew from Latin America, well, then I will definitely feel much more in touch with that Jew from Latin America. But oftentimes I'll say, but you know, what happens is that if I'm in a room and there's American Jews and there are just Mexicans, I might feel more comfortable with the Mexicans, right? So it's often who will accept you and where you share some sort of cultural modalities, right? Modes of behavior, what you might think is a shared cultural history. But infused with this is, is this idea of class, um, which I think is, is, is an important factor in the building block of identity for Latin American Jews. Latin American Jews can identify in certain ways because they erect strong class barriers between themselves and those that they perceive are of lower class. The title of the book itself is Kugel and Frijoles. You know, so here the focus is on food as a merging of um, kind of stereotypical uh, Eastern European Jewish food and you know, Latin American food. So I don't know if you want to say a bit about the importance of food uh, in shaping this identity. So much has been written about what is Jewish food, right? And what did Jews eat and Jews and Chinese food and Jews and bagels and Jews in the deli. And this idea of uh, consuming culture through food. And this is absolutely the case in, in Latin America also. And by the third generation, oftentimes we know that what do you have left? You have the food, right? What do you connect on? The matzo balls. I think this is why I chose the title in many ways, is that what happens in Latin America is that you sort of see a melding of these different kinds of, of food cuisines. In fact, one of the women that I interviewed teaches workshops on Mexican Jewish cooking because it's different than American Jewish cooking, but it's her way of being Jewish, right? Once you no longer light Shabbat candles or you no longer go to synagogue. Um, this is what you pass on to your children. This is how you're different because in your house you ate this. And I think one of the things that happens in particularly for immigrants in general when they come to the United States is, oh my God, the food's so different, right? 
I can't get my favorite foods. And one of the things that you'll notice is, and, and we actually know this from larger studies about immigrants, is how this begins to affect the health factors as people begin to eat different kinds of American foods, there's health repercussions. But something else that we notice, and this is not just among the Jews, but a second generation tend to eat different kinds of American foods, their parents feel less connected to them, right? There's a loss of their ethnic culture, their, their culture from their homeland. So one of the things that I was thinking about was how do Latin American Jews construct a sort of Jewish identity that's in line with Jewishness in their home country, right? So I think I mentioned in the book something about brisket being spiced with jalapenos. Um, the matzo balls are different. And it's absolutely Mexican Jewish cooking. In Argentina, the food's a, a little bit different. I wouldn't say much different, but we have much more of a Sephardic influence in our Jewish cuisine, for example, um, because there are more Sephardics. And then what happens when you come here? How do you bring that over here? To what extent does this become a sort of link to your past, because once you lose that, in many ways, this link begins to unravel. One of the things that's interesting coming out of, of this discussion of food and, and food ways and the interplay, generationally speaking, is this, I think, very important takeaway of thinking about the American Jewish population still being uh, immigrants and going through those same processes. I think that one of the common ways of thinking about American Jewish history is about obviously understanding American Jews as an immigrant population, but one where that process of immigration is commonly understood as being part of the past, where over the course of the 20th century, Jews, so to speak, become white. Obviously, there's still discrimination, there's still anti-Semitism, but the ways in which over the decades, uh, a lot of those restrictions have fallen away to some extent, uh, and to the extent where Jews have entered the hallways of power the point of what I'm trying to say is this way in which Jews have simultaneously become white and also are perceived as white by many people. So I think, again, this is one way of thinking about American Jewish history, right? But you're pointing out the ways in which Jews are still immigrating right, to the U.S. And I think this is a really important point as we try to conceive of American Jewish history as a whole, to think about Jewish immigration to the U.S. is not just 1881 to 1924, or however you define those boundaries, um, but it's an ongoing process. I think that that's, a, that's an excellent point. It's a great way to illuminate how it's not just that the Jewish migration is seized and then started up again, but that Jews are part of the larger wave of how the United States are changing. And we often forget that. And I think that that's an important point. And that in many ways, that's often why it's difficult for contemporary Jewish immigrants to find common ground with older generations of Jews that have been here, because their stories are very much the same stories as the Italians and the Polish immigrants that came over around the same time. You know, they assimilated along very similar trajectories. I think one of the interesting questions that I've been thinking about a lot recently is about how we can think about American Jewish history in a transnational or global frame. And I think that when people tell the story of American Jewish history, we often begin by thinking about the Sephardi Jews, you know, Jews of, of Spanish and Portuguese origin, uh, who made their way to the Americas you know, in the 17th century and, and so on. But then the, the lens narrows as we get to the period of, of American Jewish history. 
And of course, that's not exactly the entire story. So the issue I'm thinking about here is how is it that looking at the history of Latino Jews in the 20th century, in the 21st century, can help us to conceive of the, the hemispheric history, if you want to put it that way, of Jews in the Western Hemisphere beyond Curacao and so on and so forth? So when I think about sort of transnational practices, right, I, I tend to think about having a foot in more than one world. That's more of a contemporary experience that we see among some um, Latino Jews uh, here in the United States. But I think what's important to think about is that the Sephardic Jews that came over were really a, a small minority, and we can go and sort of see the synagogues in Curaçao and, and even Jamaica. But I'm not sure that their numbers were big enough to have a large impact in many ways. One of the reasons that Jewish migration to the United States is so important is because there were big numbers. Um, they changed the face of the United States. But I think they also changed the face of Latin America. And oftentimes what happens to Americans is that we don't look beyond the United States. When I was growing up, people would actually say to me, gosh, you're Jewish, but you speak Spanish. So there's this sort of myopic view that all the Jews came to the United States and that's it. One thing that I want to point out is that Latin America was an attractive place to go. It became unattractive over time, but people wanted to migrate there, particularly the Southern Cone. And as a result, they wanted to migrate and stay and build strong communities. And what's important about Latin American Jewish communities, which I don't think we place enough emphasis on, is their support of Israel. You know, whatever your position on Israel might be, the Latin American Jewish communities tend to be very Zionist or were very Zionist in nature. And they also form a large part of the, of the contemporary Jewish population in Israel. So they were sort of instrumental. Actually, if we're going to talk about transnational, that's where I think the transnational links are, right, between Latin America and Israel and back more so perhaps in Latin America and the United States. But their influence on Israel is considerable, and the influence of Israel on Latin American communities is also considerable. Well, there's obviously um, so much more that we could talk about, but I think we're out of time. I just want to thank you for this, I think, really illuminating conversation about an important set of issues. Well, thank you. This was great. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for listening to this conversation with Laura Lemonic. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig. And this is Jewish History Matters.